Welcome to Creative On Purpose Live. These conversations are about flying, higher and endeavors that make a difference. Do the work you're meant to do now. It's time to be creative on purpose. Are you ready? Let's go. I'm your host, Scott Perry, author of Endeavor and Chief Difference Maker at Creative On Purpose. Learn more about me and my work and grab your free copy of Stepping Into Possibility at creativeonpurpose.com. Let's meet today's guest. Ozan Varal, welcome to the broadcast. Thrilled to have you with us. Please tell everybody who you are, what you're up to these days, and where can they connect with you to learn more about you and your work? Thank you so much for having me on, Scott. My name is Ozan Varol. Uh, my day job is a law professor. I teach constitutional law at Lewis and Clark Law School here in beautiful Portland, Oregon. I am the author of the recently published book, Think Like a Rocket Scientist, Simple Strategies You Can Use to Make Giant Leaps in Work and Life. And the book harkens, you might be thinking, why is a law professor writing a book about rocket science? <laughs> the book harkens back to my experience working on the operations team for the 2003 Mars Exploration Rovers Project. And it should, shares with you nine strategies that you can use from rocket science to create the next breakthrough product, learn a new skill, accelerate your development. Um, you can stay in touch with me at weeklycontrarian.com. That's my weekly email that goes out every Thursday to over 21,000 people. Yeah, so I meant to say before we hopped on live, uh, I received your email just moments before we connected here and uh, just really appreciate um, the email that you sent out today, um, given the moment that we're in. It was extremely helpful. And Ozan advertises his email as one of the best things to come into your inbox. And that's actually really quite true. So you should definitely check it out. Um, before we le leap into the book, Ozan, I, one of the things that we talk a lot about at, at Creative On Purpose is that if you're going to do worth or work that's actually worth it, work that's worthy of your talents and time, you're going to face um, some challenges, some obstacles, mm -hmm. some misfortunes. And your backstory actually, um, I, I found really, really interesting as you unpacked it in the book. Um, tell us a, just a, a, a thumbnail sketch of you know where where you you started, but you, a little bit of that journey through rocket science into law professorship. Sure. So I was born and raised in Istanbul, Turkey. I lived there until I was seventeen. I grew up in a family of no English speakers. Learned English as a second language, and my childhood dream was to become an astronaut. Uh, and Turkey doesn't have a space program. And so I knew I had to go to college abroad. And um, I got into Cornell to study astrophysics. So that was my um, escape ticket. And two weeks before I arrived at Cornell, I was just researching what the astronomy department was up to. And I learned that a professor, his name is Steve Squires, was in charge of a planned mission to send a rover to Mars for what would later become the Mars Exploration Rovers Project. There wasn't a job listing, uh, but I just emailed him out of the blue. I actually remember the moment that I, I drafted the email and I expressing my burning desire to work for him. And I thought about hitting send and then that voice came into my head and said, who are you? Like, what are, what is your worth? You're a skinny kid with a funny name from a country halfway across the globe what can you possibly contribute? Um, and then I asked myself two questions, and these are two questions that I still ask myself to this day when I'm afraid of making a leap. The first is what's the worst that can happen uh, and what can I do about it? And what's the worst that can happen in that case is basically nothing, right? He just wouldn't respond to me um, and I'd never hear from him again. 
and what's the best that can happen? Well, the best that can happen is that I, I get to work on this incredible mission to Mars and, and fulfill one of my childhood dreams. So I hit send. And thanks in part to the, I taught myself how to program in, in high school. Thanks in part to those programming skills I had picked up. He invited me in for an interview, gave me a job. So I worked on that mission for four years, doing everything from helping plan operation scenarios, helping pick landing sites. My senior thesis was to actually program code that would be used to snap photos of the Martian surface. Um, and then I did a complete 180 and went to, went to law school. <laughs> and a lot of people ask me about that, that transformation or that transition. And there are a number of reasons for it. But really, the, the reason number one was I loved working on the Mars mission, but I did not love the substance of the classes that I was taking. Um, astrophysics is very, very theoretical. And I was much more interested in all my life in practical applications. And so I became more interested in the physics of society um, and left my rocket science past behind and went into law school and then later went into academia and became a law professor. And that's what I've been doing for the, for the past 10 years now. Um, but of course, I have all of these side interests like a blog and, and I, I write books as well. And so that's, that's my story in a, in a nutshell. I'm happy to dive in to discuss any of the details that you like. Well, you mentioned you were a skinny kid with a funny name, but that wasn't the biggest obstacle. I think the biggest obstacle was that you were a fan of Bon Jovi. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That, that was a huge obstacle to so many things in my life. Uh, but, you know, I was clever enough to not put that down on my resume. Yeah. What I love about the arc, you know, that, that has you here at this point is you did a lot of things. I mean, I remember you reflecting on, I think your first telescope was a lousy pair of binoculars mm -hmm. or something like that. And, um, you know, and that you were uh, you taught yourself to code. You didn't really know where any of these things were going to lead. And, but you, you kept leaning into possibility and taking chances and raising your hand. Uh, and it's just a, a real testimony, I think, for members of this community and just listeners in general, like pursuit, pursuit of your dreams is not some sort of pie in the sky, rose colored glasses journey. You will manifest your destiny by taking chances and by doing things. And we can't know where things are going to end up. But if we're pursuing those things with intention and integrity, they probably will end up somewhere great, even if it's not exactly where we planned. Um, the, the book is fantastic. I've listened to you tell it to me twice. And um, I'd love for you to just share, you know, some of the, what I loved about the beginning of the book was you talked about the importance of first principles. And for those mm -hmm. that aren't familiar with that concept, um, just share, you know, why it's so important to start there and what, what are first principles and regardless of what discipline you're in. Absolutely. And let me, let me begin with a story that illustrates first principles thinking. And it is a timely story in the sense that we just had SpaceX put two NASA astronauts uh, into orbit and then dock with the International Space Station. So when Elon Musk was first thinking about starting SpaceX, he initially shopped for rockets that he could purchase himself. So he went on the American market and that was way too expensive. He then traveled to Russia to shop for um, a Kidina decommissioned intercontinental ballistic missiles without the 
nuclear warheads on top, of course. But even that was too expensive. And on one of his trips back from Russia empty-handed, he had an epiphany. And he arrived at that epiphany using first principles thinking. So first principles thinking in a nutshell means breaking down a system into its fundamental non-negotiable components. So you hack through existing assumptions as if you're hacking through a jungle with a machete, getting rid of everything until you're left with the, with the non-negotiable raw materials. Everything else is up for negotiation. Um, and I, the analogy I give in the book is like, you go from being a cover band that plays somebody else's songs to becoming an original songwriter and singer who goes, goes to the raw materials, your musical notes, and builds something new from scratch. And so Elon Musk realized that he was initially playing the role of the cover band. And he asked himself, well, what does it take to actually put a rocket into space? Like, what are the fundamental non-negotiable raw materials in a, in a rocket. And uh, when you look at those raw materials and you try to buy them on the open market and build these rockets yourself, it was like 2% of the typical price of a rocket. So he just decided to you know, cut his own metal from scratch and build, build his next generation rockets himself at SpaceX's factories. Um, another thing that was, I think, striking about the, the launch, the recent launch for many people is that the first stage uh, of the rocket landing back on this barge in the middle of an ocean. That's a, that's a new thing in rocket science. For decades, rockets that launched payload into orbit couldn't be reused. They would plunge into the ocean or burn up in the atmosphere, requiring an entirely new rocket to be rebuilt. Now imagine doing that for commercial flights, right? You fly from, I'm in Portland, Oregon, you fly to New York, passengers deplane, and then somebody steps up to the plane and just torches it. That's basically what we did for rockets. Um, and the cost of a modern rocket is actually not that different from a Boeing 737, but commercial flights are so much cheaper because you know airplanes can be reused over and over and over again. And so now reusability is becoming a thing in rocket science. There's a landing pad at Cape Canaveral next to the launch pad. That's a new thing. And that's going to drastically reduce the cost of space flight. So if you look at the numbers, first principles thinking um, resulted in, it costs the Falcon Heavy, I think around $1,400 to put one kilograms into orbit. That's a 40x cost reduction from the space shuttle era, which is incredible. And by the way, I should also mention when Elon Musk first started the company, he gave it a 10% chance of putting a satellite into low, orbit, low Earth orbit. Now we have, we have people being carried up to the International Space Station. Well, and all that speaks a little bit to what you were saying about that conversation you had with Resistance when you were about to send yeah. the the, um, the email that got you the job with the uh, astrophysics department, and that is doing a you know we, we often talk about the postmortem like let's figure out what you know what went wrong, but mm -hmm. we don't often go into an adventure into a project into a conversation by thinking okay well what's what are the things that could go wrong? What are the, you know, what are the worst case scenarios? So, um, and it's, it just sounds like first principles thinking also is, um, uh, is a real way of leaning into curi our curious mm -hmm. in impulses and letting, relinquishing a little bit of our attachment to, um, to certainty and, 
I, that was one of the, 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 the parts of the book that really resonated um, really loudly. So in addition to, to first principles thinking, what, are, what do you think are some of the, the most important principles shared in your book that would apply to people like us who are trying to or are engaged in endeavors that seek to make the world a better place, that seek to make a difference with and for the people that we are, are doing our work? Sure. Um, and before I, before I answer that, I want to just reiterate what you said about uncertainty, because it's, it's such an important point. Um, especially in conditions of uncertainty, we copy and paste. Mm -hmm. So we look to what other people are doing, what other businesses are doing. And we assume that they know something that we don't, um, but nobody knows anything. <laughs> and so first principles thinking, I think it, is liberating in the sense that you sort of stop reasoning by analogy and go back to what you want to do. And there's so much wisdom within each of us, but we're so obsessed, I think, with an external search for answers that we often neglect the wisdom within. Um, so another principle from the book that is, that's, I think, important to anyone doing creative work is reframing problems to generate better answers. Uh, we often think that breakthroughs begin with a smart answer, but they actually begin with a smart question. And so I'll give an example that I, I, I mentioned in the book. Um, so when I started working on the, the, the Mars mission, um, our goal initially was to send a single rover to Mars. So that's, that was the status quo. That's what NASA had been doing every two years. You sort of send one rover to Mars, cross your fingers that nothing bad happens along the way. And by the way, when I first started working on the Mars mission, two thirds of Mars missions had failed. Um, and so, you know, sending one rover every two years doesn't seem like the wisest idea, uh, but that's what NASA was doing and the status quo is really sticky. So in 1999, that was the, the, my first year working on the mission, another mission called the Mars Polar Lander crashed onto the Martian surface. Now this wasn't our spacecraft, but we were planning to use the same landing mechanism that the Mars Polar Lander was planning to use. So our mission was suspended, put on hold. Um, and we were busy trying to figure out a way, a better way of landing on Mars that was actually going to work. And I remember distinctly when my boss, um, he walked into my office one day and he said, you know, I just got off the phone with the administrator of NASA. And he asked me a simple question. What if we sent two rovers instead of one? Now, it sounds so obvious in hindsight, but it was a question that none of us had thought about asking before because we were so in the weeds, so focused on fixing this landing system that no one stepped back and, and reframed the problem because the problem wasn't just a, a faulty landing system. There's so many things that can go wrong when you're traveling 40 million miles through outer space and trying to land on this Martian surface that while getting whipped around by strong winds and you're trying to land on this scary looking surface with with rocks um, but if you send two rovers instead of one you're hedging your bets you're doubling the science potentially if both land right um, and with economies of scale the second rover would end up costing just just pennies on the dollar and so we ended up sending two rovers instead of one their names are spirit and opportunity and um, and spirit these were built to last for 90 days spirit lasted for six years an opportunity, and I, I get goosebumps every time I say this, but opportunity lasted for 14 years into its 90-day mission, all because someone dared to step back and ask a question 
that none of us had thought about asking before. Yeah, and there's a great story about the names of those two rovers too yeah. that, that's highlighted in the book that I also love. One of the things that really stood out, well, a couple things. So one of the things that was happening when I was listening to the, your book the first time is how many of the principles that you were talking about resonate with things that we teach at Creative On Purpose. And one, one of the things that you just said um, is something we talk about a lot, which is the status quo is like something that human beings crave. We love to know where we stand and what's expected of us, even if it's not serving us, even if we recognize that things you know, could be better, we are comforted by just having a day that's just another one of those. And in the moment that we're in historically now, we are seeing that certainty um, is a false promise. There is mm -hmm. actually nothing certain. <laughs> um, and at the same time, this posture of possibility and curiosity and asking better questions that you're talking about, even, even now, many of us are having difficulty leaning into this mindset of being a little bit more curious in this posture of asking questions instead of looking for, for answers. Do you have any tips or um, any, any lessons to share on like how, how do you cultivate that habit of being a little less certain and a little bit more curious and looking at a problem uh, and seeing the possibility, seeing an obstacle, but also seeing the opportunity within it. I'll give an example from my own personal life. So my book came out on, on April 14th and uh, I had this big book tour plan that was going to travel to a number of different cities in the United States. And of course with the pandemic, it got canceled. Um, and I spent two just miserable days doing exactly what I tell people not to do, which is, <laughs> which is wishing or trying to control something that I had no control over, right? I don't have any control over the pandemic. I don't have any control over the cancellation of my book tour, but I just, you know, it was two days of just wishing reality to be different than, than, than it was. And it's like tugging on a flower to make it grow faster. Not gonna happen. And so I went back to my rocket science training and started to think like a rocket scientist and, and started asking myself a series of questions that are actually useful to ask at this time, particularly, because we've been forced out of the status quo. And so it's a great time to be examining what assumptions should be there and what assumptions should be scrapped. And so from my perspective with the book tour, I mean, it just dawned on me that I, I was not reasoning from first principles, right? The only reason I was going to do this book tour is because I thought that's what authors do. You write a book, you go on a book tour, which is the antithesis, the opposite of, of first principles thinking. Um, but if you look, and I did, if you look at that assumption of, of a book tour, it's probably not the best way to get the word out about your book, right? I mean, I'd have to get on a flight from here to New York, go into a Barnes & Noble, uh, talk to a crowd of what maybe 50 people, sign some books and come home. Um, there are far more effective ways of, of getting the word out. And so I ended up doing a number of virtual events, virtual book launches that ended up being very, very successful. And so one of the ways that you can ask better questions that you can zoom out is often what we're doing is tactical. So a book tour is a tactic. Um, a, you know, a, uh, a landing system is a tactic. Those tactics 
we shouldn't be doing them for, for the sake of the tactic. And tactics can be the subtlest of traps, as Neil Gaiman says. Um, because it's like that old saying, right? If, if you're a hammer, then everything looks like a nail. Mm -hmm. If you're looking too closely at the tactics in front of you, you're going to lose the forest for the trees and lose sight of the broader strategy that you're trying to achieve. So asking in, in my example, well, what is the tactic here to serve, right? The tactic being the book tour. The overall strategy is getting the word out about the book, about the ideas that I believe in that I wrote about in the book. Um, and if you zoom out, then, well, book tour is just one tactic in service of that strategy. It's actually a pretty lousy tactic, a physical book tour. And then other possibilities open up. Um, you know, same thing with, with the, uh, the Mars rover example I mentioned, right? If you define the, the problem more broadly as not just a faulty landing system, but just the inherent risk of, of getting a rover onto the Martian surface, then sending two rovers instead of one decreases risk and increases reward. And so those two terms I find really helpful. They're used interchangeably, tactics and strategy, but they refer to very different things. So if you're confused with the two, it's helpful to ask, what is this tactic here to serve? If you move from the what to the why, then it becomes possible to see other possibilities lurking in plain sight. Yeah, I really love that. We, we often talk about starting with the end in mind. So what's the goal right. that you're seeking to achieve and then your strategy and you and then your strategy is whatever the plan is to achieve that goal. Those things you have to be pretty invested and decided upon. And then you get to play with the tactics and you know tactics can be tossed or tested and or tweaked mm -hmm. as you go. You you leverage the ones that work and you scrap the ones or tweak the ones that don't. Um, but I love what you said and I just want to highlight it. You know we are, the, the tactics are a very seductive hiding place because it's the difference between productivity and progress. Right. Productivity feels like progress, but it's actually often not prog progress. We're doing a lot of things, but we're not moving towards the possibility that we had set up in front of us. I also lo love what you said about testing assumptions and then the Seth universe, Seth Godin universe that you and I are both familiar with. Um, he talks in, a lot about assertions, this idea of putting forth an idea that you believe to be true, but you're willing to put up to scrutiny and to receive feedback and willing to abandon if the facts or the science or just sound reasoning proves that you, you, you've, you've put forth the wrong um, assertion. The other thing that you said that made me think of something Seth talks about is, you know, we spend that moment that you talked about when the, you know, you're supposed to go on a book tour. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we, we often are, when faced with uncertainty, are, are will default to what if thinking like, oh, you know, and, and instead, if we engage as if thinking, then we can get ourselves out of get out, ourselves unstuck and thinking about uh, the other choices. So just, you know, really appreciate um, those, uh, those tips. What, when you think about the book and the, the arc of your career through several different careers, do you, what, 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 what thought do you have about like, what, a, what are, what is Ozan Veral for? What's, what's, what's your vision, your mission, and, and how is your life strategically oriented toward that endpoint. 
Yeah, I think I define my mission as uh, reimagining the status quo and, and helping empowering other people to reimagine the status quo in their personal and professional lives. Um, that's been, that's really at the core of what I've done throughout my entire life, um, reinventing myself in so many different ways. And also just, I always look at conventional wisdom and put a question mark at the end of it. Um, so why? Is there a better way of doing this? Um, and my newsletter is called The Weekly Contrarian and often the word contrarian gets a bad rep because it conjures up images of like, you know, that one person in a meeting just raising their hand and like shooting every idea down. And that's not what I talk about. The idea isn't to, you know, if everybody is walking right, you just walk left um, just because you want to be a contrarian. No, walk left because it's the right thing to do, if it's the right thing to do, right? Um, and so, and that's something that I've done over the course of my life. And, and, and the way I do it is, the way I reimagine the status quo is little experiments. And that comes from my scientific training. It's like, you come up with a hypothesis um, nothing in science is ever proven right. It's simply proven not wrong. And the way that you prove something not wrong is that you do an experiment and you try to prove yourself wrong as opposed to prove yourself right. And so I do a lot of these just limited experiments because I am, I'm prone to thinking too much, creating all sorts of pro and con lists, but it's really hard to figure out what the possible consequences are going to be until you actually try, until you actually give it a shot. Um, and that experimental mindset has served me really well, you know? So like transitioning from astrophysics to law school, the experiment for me was taking a class that was taught by a law professor. Uh, and I loved the class and ended up going to law school. Um, my experiment with academia was taking a temporary teaching position in Chicago, where I met my wife incidentally, before actually moving to a tenure track position. Um, so I run these limited experiments with my life and some of these work, others fall flat, but that's, I, for me, that's the best way to figure out what you're going to enjoy. Um, it's also the best way to figure out what people are going to respond to. Um, and, and it's that intersection of like following your curiosity and what brings you meaning and purpose and happiness and what people are asking for is that Venn diagram, the middle of it is, that's where the sweet spot is. Um, and so I encourage those who are listening, who are thinking about making a leap in their lives, just to think through how they can set up a limited experiment to reimagine the status quo, to start something new, to, to take a leap. Um, because that I think decreases the threshold to getting started too. If you just view life as a series of experiments, you get to do a lot more things and life becomes more fun. Yeah, I love that. At Creative on Purpose, one of the taglines is we enhance our lives most through endeavors that serve others and have a, actually do have a Venn diagram that <laughs> talks about aligning <laughs> values with your, you know, your, your soft and hard skills and people that need your or share your values and need your talents. Yeah. And that's the sweet spot where you can find something, you know, the whole object is, is the pursuit of finding fulfilling work that's going to make things better. I really, um, you know, and again, your book just so fully resonated um, with so much of what we do here. I, I, I was glad that I had built my brand before I read your book. Otherwise, I think I would have been accused of stealing, not so much like an artist, but just like a, like a thief. Um, so as our time is coming to an end here, Ozan, I, I always like to ask my guests this one final question. And that is, 
if there's just one piece of advice, one lesson, uh, one tip that you would share to leave listeners with that will help them fly higher in an endeavor where they seek to make a difference, what would that, what would that tip or piece of advice be? So I opened the book with telling a story about John F. Kennedy stepping up to the podium at Rice University Stadium and pledging to land a man on the moon and return him safely to the earth before the decade is out. And at the time, this was quite literally a moonshot. Um, several prerequisites for a moon landing hadn't been created yet, hadn't been done yet. So no American astronaut had been outside of a spacecraft. Two spacecraft had never docked together in space. NASA didn't know if the lunar surface was solid enough to support a lander. And Kennedy said some of the metals required to build the rockets hadn't even been invented yet. So we, we jumped into the cosmic void and hoped that we'd grow wings on the way up. Um, and grow those wings, we did. A child who was just six years old when the Wright brothers took their first power flight would have been 72 when flight became powerful enough to put Neil and Buzz on the moon. And that giant leap was taken within a single human lifespan. And that to me is incredible. And that story is, is so powerful for, for so many reasons, but I think as, as it might apply to our, our personal lives, one is long-term thinking. We tend to think very short-term. Um, businesses chase quarterly outcomes. Politicians change the, uh, chase these short-term electoral cycles. But if you can calibrate your vision for the long-term, just think a little bit longer than you otherwise would, it's amazing what you're able to achieve. And aim a little bit higher. Um, you don't literally have to aim for the moon, but if you aim just a little bit higher than you would have done before, because we're conditioned by society to play to not lose, not to win. Um, if, you can, if you can just calibrate your vision in the direction of the moon, even if you fail, you're going to fail above your previous success. Um, so those would be my two uh, final thoughts. Oh, awesome. Well, I want to thank everyone for tuning in. Ozan and I really appreciate you lending us some of your valuable time and attention. And we hope today's broadcast motivates you to lean into an endeavor that matters with greater curiosity and courage. You can learn more about Ozan Baral at? At weeklycontrarian.com. And you can always learn more about the work being done at Creative On Purpose at creativeonpurpose.com. Now, go and make a difference and keep flying higher. Ozan Baral, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Scott. It was my pleasure.